Welcome to the Top Nonprofits Podcast. We know that you're working hard to stay on top of the latest best practices to help your organization deliver on its mission. And this podcast is here to make that a little easier. Twice a month, your host, Amy DeVita, interviews a nonprofit expert on topics ranging from fundraising to volunteer recruitment and a little of everything in between to give all our friends an opportunity to learn from the best nonprofit leaders and organizations out there. Today, our guest is an awesome, amazing digital storyteller and marketing genius. Is that overstating it? I don't think so. <laughs> Not at all. Um, Julia Campbell of JC Social Marketing. Hi, Julia. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm so glad to be here with you, Amy. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you could be here too. Um, it's, it's really um, exciting and I'm going to get into a little bit about um, what I really like about you, Julia, that I think that oh. the audience, yeah, <laughs> some self-affirmation stuff today. Um, so it, for those of you who may not know, Julia Campbell, um, she is, as I mentioned, a, a great, she's a consultant who does, focuses on social marketing, storytelling, everything around digital. And I've seen her, you know, I've seen her um, speak in person. I follow her stuff online and I highly recommend that all of you out there do the same. Um, we're talking today about a book that she has coming out. For those of you um, who are interested, I would definitely tell you to check it out. It's on her website, um, jcsocialmarketing.com. You'll see um, under books, uh, you'll see her, her first book, Storytelling in the Digital Age, A Guide for Nonprofits which is highly, I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll also be able to access how to build and mobilize a social media community in 90 days. Um, mm-hmm. That is coming out soon. And that is what we're really going to talk about today. Yes. yes. Um, I got to say, so here's, here's the part. Okay, Julia, what I love about um, what you do is really everything I've seen you do is it's practical. It's, it's actionable. It's not, um, it's not some wizardry, wizardry that, um, you know, I really, that is beyond the ability of folks who are working at nonprofits. Um, this is, and I think part of it, you know, is just that your background comes from mm-hmm. working in nonprofits and yes. being that person who has way too many hats. Um, yeah. Duties as assigned. Duty, yes, yes, as assigned. Is that like a red flag in a um, job posting? Never take a job posting that doesn't have the salary listed and that says duties as assigned. Never. There you go. See, you're already learning actionable things for you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think you know, it's like you said um, in the book or the part that I've read so far, the forward uh, or the... Um, as you mentioned in your background, you know, there were skill sets that weren't even, they weren't things you had. You have to learn it as you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't just, I'm sure you weren't just doing anything. You, you're the type of person that's going and researching this on your own time in addition to the many, many, many hours put into work. So um, I think that's really relatable to a lot of the people who come to top nonprofits. So um, that's, you know, 
I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I came to that conclusion when I had my first development director job that I was going to have to really figure all of it out for myself. I had never done grant writing. I had never done fundraising. I had never done corporate relations, media relations, my degrees in journalism. So I at least had some writing background and research background, but I, you know, thrown to the wolves. That's usually what a lot of fundraising slash marketing or marketing communications people at nonprofits, you know, we're, we're usually expected to just learn as we go. And often people come from the social work sector or they come from programs or they come from a complete other industry and skill set and they have to learn on their feet. And so I'm glad that you said that. I try to make everything that I teach things that I have done either in my history, you know, being a development director or with my clients who are usually small to mid-sized nonprofits with, you know, tiny, tiny departments, usually one person doing all of the marketing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something else. And um, I, I think there was a part in the book where you say, basically, your job comes down to everything but programs. Right. <laughs> so. Oh, my job, yeah, my, my first development job was everything but programs. Yeah. I was even coordinating the volunteers and the hotline and I don't know how, I still do not know how I did it, but how did you do it? Oh my gosh. A lot of us out there do it. Yeah, no, I, I recognize that. And that's why I'm glad you're here today. Uh, and of course, so adding to the mystery mix of marketing, um, handling marketing at a nonprofit several mm-hmm. years ago, add to that mix, the, um, the beginnings of social media. So um, yep. let's let's go let's go there. Tell me <laughs> um, a little bit about um, really you know how we got here and what are these media myth, social media myths that you refer to in the book. Right in the book, I talk about six of the most frequent and probably most destructive social media myths that I still see today. I still see a little bit today, but things that have really, I think, messed with our heads in how, in terms of how we approach social media. So, of course, the number one myth is that social media is free. And since it's free, it must be super easy and absolutely anybody can do it. So, back when MySpace came out and when Facebook became more ubiquitous and introduced Facebook pages and Twitter came out and LinkedIn... I feel like, and I know that we were kind of sold a little bit of snake oil. So what we were promised was that we would set up shop on Facebook. It would be such a great way to reach all of our fans. They would raise their hands. They'd like us. We'd be able to reach them in a more intimate way. We'd be able to connect with them on a deeper level than we would maybe via email or via events. And as we know, social media has changed so much. Uh, since then, since you know Facebook rolled out business pages in 2007, that it's inc- getting increasingly harder to keep up with it. Um, so when people talk to me and they say, "Well, social media is free," I always say to them, "You can get a puppy for free, right? I can give you a puppy. We can go adopt a puppy. It's definitely not free. You maybe don't have to pay for it or purchase it, but you have to take care of it." I mean, it requires willpower and creativity, consistency, persistence, time, a lot of patience. 
And, you know, the principles to getting results are sort of the same. So I really hate that myth. But then on the other hand, there's the myth that you have to have a computer science degree to understand social media. So there are two of those competing myths where either you have to be technically skilled and you have to know everything about marketing and you have to know everything about search engine optimization and click-through rates and things like that um, to really function well and to really do it well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, I mean, there are just so many myths. I think one of my favorite myths that I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast can, it will resonate with them is let's just get a young unpaid intern to manage it for us. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> that is brilliant. Why doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> right. And I, I share a job description that I found in a nonprofit Facebook group for a volunteer social media intern, an unpaid position, 25 hours a week. Mm-hmm. The required skills and the required duties are completely insane for that level of you know, for volunteer social media intern. So while some of us think, you know, social media is worthless for marketing, um, there's another group that believes that any young person can just do it. So I have a niece, I have a nephew. (laughs) That's the thing. I, I see that all the time in the sector that there's this coveting and this worship of younger people and millennials Mm -hmm. and Gen Z and thinking that they know, they know everything about social media. They Mm -hmm. might know how to use the platforms for personal use, but doing it for marketing and fundraising requires a whole different skill set. So I don't know. Those are some of the things that I found really pervasive in the sector that I tackle in the book. And, you know, this, this whole cult of free and the cult Mm -hmm. of the young, those are two things that I think the sector really needs to combat and take a look at. Julia, I, uh, sorry, I think I cut you off. You were saying you started to say something about a niece and nephew. Oh well, I just went to a board meeting, and if the client's listening, I won't say the client's name. Mm-hmm. And the director said, "I'm just going to have my nephew run our Instagram account." Mm. And I said, "Well, the nephew's 16 years old. This is an organization that potentially could have an amazing Instagram presence. They have a lot of great visuals, and they." potentially could do a fantastic job if they had a strategy and a plan and maybe an actual staff person to work the plan an hour a week or so. But just this thought that, oh, well, he says he can do it. And then sure enough, he got busy with sports. He got busy with school. He got busy with a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, And doing Instagram for this nonprofit just kind of fell by the wayside. So this whole thought that we can just get someone to do this work for free This is why so much of what we see on nonprofit social media channels is not well thought out. It's not well designed. It doesn't look like it's speaking to anyone and it's just not compelling. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, my son is 19. So I've had a 16 year old boy and um, I have a 16 year old daughter right now. Um, I would not put them in charge of anybody's social (laughs) media because of this. And nothing against them. They're good kids. But, um, as you mentioned, it's marketing. It's like, would you put them in charge of your writing your press release and talking to media 
No. Would you put them in front of major donors? But it's that um, idea that because they're young and they use the, you know, they're always on their phones, that they yeah. know what they're doing. And I can't tell you how many times I've been asked by one of them, like, hey, you know, what time is that movie playing or where is this? And it's like, what is that device you're right. holding on to? Do you know how this works? So right. it's that idea, as you mentioned, you know, it's like just because they know how to use Snapchat and Instagram really well doesn't mean that they're able to put out content, not even to mention content that will, in a positive light, um, mm-hmm. project to your organization or how do they respond to comments and, you know, things that just yeah. occur. So. Exactly. Really? Is that where you want to go? I know. And I, something I see a lot of organizations struggling with because they are so resource strapped and time starved and bootstrapping everything is that they have this one person, maybe it's a staff member and they do all the marketing, Mm -hmm. all the fundraising and everything that comes with marketing and fundraising when they really should be two separate jobs. And trust me, I've been in that job that's worn both hats. But the skill set required and the priorities, you know, I see marketing as very different. I see marketing as grabbing attention. You've got Mm -hmm. to take risks. You've got to understand technology. You've got to get yourself out there. You've just got to be a little more flashy. And I see fundraising complimenting or marketing complimenting fundraising, but fundraising is about relationship building. Once you've grabbed that attention and piqued that curiosity and gotten someone interested, then what do you do with it? And then you take them along a journey where you deepen their connection to the organization. So if we're constantly shifting gears all day long, every day, we're not going to be able to dive deeply into one aspect of our work. So that's not something I necessarily have a one-size-fits-all solution to, but it is something that I did see in my research for this book and then also just my work with clients. Do you have any suggestions for, you know, an organization, I work with one right now that I can think of that they, the same person, it's not the same person doing fundraising as is doing the marketing or specifically the social media, Mm -hmm. the digital marketing, but how can they work to, to what degree should they be working in tandem? How can they connect to make sure... I assume they need to be on the same page. They can't work in silos separate of one another. They absolutely need to be meeting regularly, if more than once a week, Mm -hmm. to talk about what's going on the social media channels and how is the content helping achieve the overall organizational priorities. So ideally for an organization, you would have three big, gigantic organizational priorities for the year. If you have more than three and you're a tiny organization, it's going to be, you're going to be stretched way too thin and you're not going to do any one of these three goals well. So having those three main goals for your organization and then really looking at how can marketing support that goal, what are the strengths of marketing, and then how can fundraising support that goal and make sure they're working together. And especially now with social media fundraising being so popular, you know, Facebook fundraisers, have Mm -hmm. raised over $2 billion from 45 million people since they started, since Facebook introduced the tools. So they're becoming more meshed. And the thing is, donors don't care who puts up the tweet or the post or the Instagram. They don't care if it's marketing or fundraising. 
They care, did we solve a problem? Is this um, contributing to the solution that I care about? Mm-hmm. What is the cause? What is the issue? What do I need to know? What is the information that I need to have? You know, who am I impacting? Is this really making a meaningful difference? So to the donor or the supporter or the volunteer, whoever you're targeting, at the end of the day, they don't care who did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't care who did it. But I think where we get confused is that marketing feels like it's their job, um, feels like donor acquisition is their job. So they need to constantly be going out and looking for new donors when really their job is really to get people excited and interested and aware and then hopefully bring them into the fold either on a social media channel, to an event, on the email list where they can then deepen Mm -hmm. the relationship. Because in my, I mean, just in my experience, social media is not the best for donor acquisition. Mm -hmm. It's great for keeping keeping attention. It's great for getting donors to understand what you do and to get them excited, to get them to share information. But if you're just going to post a bunch of fundraising asks with no context, it's really not the best. It's really not the best for that. So fundraising and marketing should be working never across purposes, but also have really clear like delineations as to who's responsible for what. So there's really no, you know, there's no confusion over that. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. And that brings me to the, the part of your book, um, really, it's the three reality checks for n- nonprofit marketers in the digital age. Yes. So, you know, this is, when I wrote this part of the book, it's just my sort of real talk, kind of tough love for the people that I, the people that I serve, the people that I work with, and also anytime I speak, I really kind of have to give these three caveats and explain these three reality checks that we all have to face so we're on the same page. And the first one is that humans are in information overload. We are in content shock. That's a, a term coined by the blogger Mark Schaefer, where we literally cannot function with the amount of information being thrown at our brains each day. And I think that even in 2020, this is going to be more important. More people are taking digital detoxes. More people are taking breaks from social media. More people are taking breaks from their phones because we're starting to find out the effects of screen time and the effects of social media use on mental health. So people are going to be much more selective. So nonprofits have to be even more creative and even more relevant if we're going to get a piece of that attention because people are, oh man, unsubscribing from emails left and right. It's going to be even harder to get traction. And then number two, we all have decision fatigue. Every single one of us, if you ever wonder why the end of the day, we're completely exhausted because the average US adult uses an average of two mobile devices plus a desktop computer they're pinging every single day. They're begging you to pick it up. They're forcing you to decide, should I check Facebook? Should I check Instagram? Should I check my email? And then this is the same thing that happens to nonprofit marketers because we're constantly switching gears and we're constantly um, you know, shifting our focus. And so the more that we create and the manage, the more tired we feel. So we're busy 
everyone's busy and people are being pulled in this just relentless stream of notifications. So if we make things simplified and easier for our donors in all of our communications with our supporters, if we make things much more simple, if we throw less information at people, they're much more likely to respond to it. And then number three, we can't control the algorithms. We will never be able to control the algorithms. And by algorithms, I mean those wonderful little pieces of code that decide who sees what when. So why did this one supporter see that on your Facebook page and this other supporter didn't? Or why do you see posts from this friend and not posts from this other friend? It's all due to an algorithm. Every social media site has it and they're constantly being tweaked. So we can't control these sites. We can't control these businesses and they are businesses at the end of the day. Very important to know. Facebook and Instagram do not have our best interests at heart. I think we know that. But there are ways that we can leverage the power and the potential to further our missions and accomplish our goals. But we have to stop focusing on the negatives and really start embracing the positives and doing everything that we can to leverage the strengths of the platforms. Absolutely. That goes back to what you said earlier. You know, it's social media everyone thought it was free back in the day, right? When we mm-hmm. were so naive, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, we're so optimistic. Um, it's, it's not. Facebook and Instagram are moneymakers and yep. they're making money. They've, the, the changing of those algorithms um, helps them to make more money because then everybody has to boost or, you know, boost their posts. Um, yep. And I think that, this, this is what frustrates me when nonprofits say, well, we're not going to raise money on Facebook because we don't get the donor info. And I'm saying, this is the golden age of Facebook right now. We are only on a downhill slope. Mm-hmm. So get in while the getting's good. It's sort of like the gold rush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and figure out how we can use these platforms to further our missions instead of we keep letting these platforms use us mm-hmm. and use our data and use our attention. But let's figure out how we can leverage these platforms to accomplish things that we want to accomplish. And let's not get hung up on whether Facebook gives us every single email of every single $5 donor Mm-hmm. that comes through a nonprofit fundraiser. So that's a huge, huge deal. Um, that's a huge obstacle that I'm seeing right now. People are saying, well, we don't get the donor data, so we're, not, we're just not going to do it. But that's such a huge missed opportunity sure. because it's not going to be this way forever. I mean, think about MySpace closed and think about Friendster and think mm-hmm. about Vine. I mean, platforms come and go. So let's, you know, let's get in while the getting's good. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I was looking up some, some stats this morning before our call and the, and Pew Research show, you know, Mm -hmm. just showed the, since I'd say since 2016, Facebook has kind of leveled out in terms of adult users. Mm -hmm. However, it's still, according to that graph, this is my visual. It's like, it was still double the closest competitor. Um, And the closest competitor was probably, was it Instagram? probably, which they own? Yes. Uh, well, YouTube is probably its closest competitor, but yes. I, don't, I don't see YouTube as 
a social media site. I see it as a search engine. People don't go there to communicate with friends and family. They don't go there to post updates. They go there to search for things. Mm -hmm. So it's still viewed as a social media site, but I don't really see it as traditional social media where you're sharing updates and posts and comments and things like that. Um, Yeah, definitely Instagram. I think what's interesting about Instagram, of course, Facebook owns it. It's the only site that's growing, that's Mm -hmm. continuing to grow in engagement and its user base. Everything else, really, it is kind of, it's kind of plateauing and Mm -hmm. they're scrambling to get new users. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this all goes back to what you were saying earlier about having a marketing, you know, strategy. Yes. It's, It's, yes. And even the, um, pushback from the organization saying that you're not getting donor data from Facebook. Well, who said you're going to get donors from Facebook? Maybe your your intention for your marketing strategy is to use Facebook as more of a marketing tool to get mm-hmm. in front of more people and to have you, the people who are your current supporters share their share it and kind of help with that in, enlarging your sphere of influence. Exactly. And I, when I give talks, I always get pushback on, you know, percentage of fundraising that's online or percentage of this that's online. Mm -hmm. And I think social media is never going to replace what's working in your organization. And I would never suggest that. So when people hear me, you know, kind of evangelize social media just because I think it can do great things. I don't mean cancel your direct mail program cancel grants, cancel your newsletter, whatever you're doing that's working, keep doing it. But the reality is more and more people are turning to social media for news, for updates. They're using it to express their feelings on causes that they care about and issues that they care about. And they're forming groups around specific causes. Mm -hmm. So it just can't be ignored, but it is a tool in your toolbox. It should never be looked at as the end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. So it should be augmenting whatever else you're doing. And that's why I always talk about in the book, I have, you sit through this blueprint. I have created a blueprint to go with the book where you have to work out your goals first. Mm -hmm. You have to figure out what are you trying to achieve? And only then can you best determine which platforms will help you achieve it. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that takes some time. It's not an easy thing to do. No, it's absolutely not easy. I mean, real success requires knowing exactly what you want to achieve, knowing who you need to target. So really having an idea of who your audience is, mm-hmm. understanding the kind of information that they want to get from you. And if it's donors, they want to know where the money went and what the money did. If it's your supporters, they want to know about the issue and are you making a difference towards this issue or on this issue that they care about. And you have to just constantly be measuring and tweaking and improving. Maybe Twitter was working for you five years ago. It's not working anymore. So maybe you moved somewhere else. I mean, it really is, it really is a lot of work. I know it can be infuriating and and frustrating, but I really think that building this kind of energized constituency and genuinely communicating with supporters, I really, I don't think that's a waste of time and it should never be a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Do, um, 
Are there any organizations that you see in social media, you see their accounts and you think that they do a really spot on great job and we can use those examples? Yes, I always use, there's three examples that I always use because they're local to me and they're near and dear to my heart and I absolutely love them. One is Plumber Youth Promise, P-L-U-M-M-E-R. They're a foster care agency in Salem, Massachusetts, very small organization. They can't share identifying details of their clients because they're minors. They do such a great job storytelling and really creating empathy around the foster care system and just educating people around the issue and um, bringing you in, into the fold and having you experience what it's like to live in this foster care home. I mean, it's really, they do great stuff for such a small organization. The second is Rosie's Place in Boston. And another thing, they, they have confidentiality issues, but they do have some women that have gone through their program that share their stories. They do a fantastic job storytelling and they share a lot of video. They have one director of marketing and fundraising. I think they might have a part-time staff person helping her, but just for such a small budget and such a small staff, the amount of content that they put out, blogs and emails and video, and sometimes things are produced and sometimes things are not produced, but they're just very authentic. And what I also love about Rosie's Place is that they stick to their mission. Like you, you can tell they're advocating for these women. They don't take government funding, so they're able to do a lot more and, and be a little bit freer in their programs and the things that they do. But you can really see their passion for the issue when, when they share their stories of staff members. And the third is a group called Amira. It's A-M-I-R-A-H, Amira Incorporated. And they are a rehabilitation program for people that have survived sex trafficking in New England, which you would never think was an issue in your backyard. I've learned so much from following them. Like I've actually learned, just really learned a lot about the sex trafficking industry and how it impacts people and what goes on in New England, which is where I live. It's really interesting and horrifying, but it's fascinating. And they do a great job leveraging um, live stream video. So they, the executive director will go live once a week usually and she will just share, this is in the news, what you need to know. Here's what's going on this week. Here's just a milestone that we accomplished. This woman was 30 days sober or, you know, this person was, you know, got their GED or whatever it is, these little milestone moments that they share. And um, I just really, I think that we get, so hung up on Charity Water, who obviously does a great job, or Greenpeace or World Vision or any of these gigantic charities that do amazing work on social media with gigantic budgets and gigantic staff. But we need, you know, I, I encourage my clients, I encourage everyone to, to follow your partners and other people in the community that are small just like you, because they are doing great things. So they don't have 10 million followers on Twitter. But the people they do have are very engaged and very passionate about the work. I love that those are small organizations. Um, and 
you touched on this. Um, they, I guess in every one of those cases, they have confidentiality issues, which yes. I hear, you know, there's always somebody in every conference session mm-hmm. who raises their hand, but, <laughs> and they're, and, um, you know, and it's, uh, but we, we're not, uh, we're, we don't have cute animals. Yes. We can't, you know, we, we're not that lucky. We have our organization. We don't have anything we can share. Um, so, and I'm sorry if I just did a bad impression of anybody out there, <laughs> but it happens in every session and there are workarounds. And so these would, I have not seen them, but I'm going to go check them out. Um, yes. Those would be good examples of how you can work around and still tell your story. And, you yeah. know, that's what's going to touch and move people. Oh, you have to tell, you have to tell your story. The two comments I get every mm-hmm. time I present are, Number one, confidentiality issues. Actually, there's three now that I think about it. One is confidentiality, which I think I addressed. Go follow all of those. Mm-hmm. Make some graphics. You got to just figure it out and get creative. Mm-hmm. The second is we don't have a sexy cause. We don't have kids. We don't have kittens. We're a research facility or we're a historical society or we are academic or whatever it is. Now, when I hear that, I can't imagine you saying that to your donors. Mm -hmm. Like we're not a sexy cause, but give us money. No. So what do you say to inspire people to raise money? You know, you have to kind of flip it on its head and say, you might internally think that you are not a sexy cause, but please don't ever say that out loud to anyone because you are sexy to somebody. Someone's giving you money. There's a reason you exist. Right. There's a community around you. Even if you are a tiny little Disease. I work with this organization, um, the Dravet Syndrome Foundation. They're an amazing group. Dravet is a very rare form of epilepsy. Mm. You know, so it's a very specific disease. It's a very specific group of people. And, you know, they would never say, oh, well, this is, you know, we struggle because of this. We try, because they know that they are, first of all, making a huge difference to the families that they're serving, but also they know that the people that are passionate about Dravet and epilepsy and the cure are really passionate about it. So find that group mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. and find those passionate supporters. And you were talking about tough love earlier. So there, yes. I'm going to go, I'm going to go there and say, stop using that cop out that it is. your cause excuse. isn't sexy because there are people who are donating. Why are they donating to you? For a write-off? And then you have to think about the why. So I think that Gervais Syndrome is a great example, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me talking about them. They're, they're fan, such a fantastic group, and they work so, so hard. And what they were saying was, it's so hard to convey the impact because we do research but there's no cure yet. And so I said, well, okay, why don't we, we'll focus like ALS. You know, there's no cure for ALS, right. but they're still talking about the breakthroughs and talking about the stories of the people that have been helped. I'm thinking of um, mm-hmm. the St. Baldrick's Foundation. That's the group that gets people to shave their heads and raise money for childhood cancer research. Mm-hmm. They don't provide direct services at all. They fund research, but all of their social media, all of their communications are around the why, which are the kids. So as long as you focus on the why, not the what. So stop focusing on what you do every day. 
Focus on the why, because that's at the end of the day, what your supporters care about and what's really going to inspire them. That's great. Focus on the why. Um, I think you said there were three things that come up. Yes. In every session. What was the third? The third one. I'm sure you've heard this before. How can I get buy-in from my supervisor and my coworkers? Mm -hmm. So how can I get stories? How can I get content? Um, I actually heard at a conference the exact opposite of that, which was my coworkers keep giving me too much content. How can I balance out the content that they want to share along with the content that I'm creating? But I think the first step to getting buy-in is education. So at a staff meeting, bringing out the editorial calendar doing an inventory of all of the different channels that you're on, showing examples of what you want. Because I I was guilty of this when I uh, was working in the sector. I would come along and I'd send an email to all the program directors and I would say, I'm sending out the newsletter on Friday. I need some stories. And then of course it'd be crickets because they're super busy. They didn't really know what I wanted. They didn't understand... I was going to protect client confidentiality. This was at a domestic violence shelter mm-hmm. where I worked. So you have to be crystal clear on what you want and how they can help rather than just say, I wish everybody would help with social media. Be specific, be clear, and provide examples. Say, look, this is what Plumber Youth Promise is doing. This is what another organization just like ours is doing. I, w- I think we could do something like this, but I need your help and here's how and here's what I need. So be as specific as possible, but also advocate for yourself. Talk about the editorial calendar at every meeting. You know, share your social media wins at staff meetings and at events. Um, just kind of bake it into everything that you do. That's great advice. I, and people tend to be afraid to ask questions mm-hmm. at, at meetings because it means they, do, God forbid, they don't know. There's something they don't know. Um, right. So as you're more clear and specific about here's what we're looking for, here's how you can help, here are the actions you can take that exactly. helps clarify that for them so that they feel more comfortable and Yeah, and have you. an open door policy. Mm-hmm. Because I feel, I know that a lot of people, they do, they feel stupid if they have to ask a question. They feel like they need to know everything about Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and email. And they, you know, it's, it's not their, their job to know. So make mm-hmm. sure you have an open door policy and no judgment policy. If someone wants to call you and ask a question, you'll, you know, you, you'll answer it. It's a judgment-free zone Mm -hmm. because I do feel like people are scared and skeptical of things that they don't understand, but the more they get to understand it, the more confident uh, they will be. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's helpful. Um, I mean, I feel like I could go out and conquer the world now. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Julia. Thanks. Um, I, I really appreciate this. Um, it was great. You know, thanks for going over what those really common myths are about social media and using it for, um, as part of your marketing strategy, um, going over those reality checks for organizations and providing those great examples. So thank you. Um, I hope you'll come back and do this again sometime. Yes. Um, tell everybody um, how to find you and, um, and if there's anything on the horizon um, coming up for you that they should know about. 
Sure. My website is jcsocialmarketing.com. You'll see on the menu, I have my books, my blog, free resources for nonprofits, all sorts of great stuff uh, up on my website. So make sure you check that out. And for social media, I'm probably most active on Twitter. I'm at Julia C. Social on Twitter. So find me there too. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Julia. Take care. Um, Looking forward to when the book is released and, um, and we'll definitely have to have you back again sometime. That's it for today, friends. See you soon. In the meantime, check out all the great resources we offer at topnonprofits.com. 